Welcome to another episode of the Duck of Minerva podcast. I'm your guest host, Luke Perez of Arizona State University. In this episode, I chatted with Catherine Sanger of Yale NUS in Singapore. Because the coronavirus spread in Asia first, Catherine's institution transitioned to online teaching roughly a month before many professors did here in the United States. In this conversation, we spoke about her rapid transition to online teaching in early and mid-February, what to expect during that transition, and what kind of pedagogical strategies help make the transition as smooth as possible for both faculty and students. And um, I wanted to talk to you today because you are about six weeks to eight weeks ahead of the United States in in terms of moving a traditional classroom online rapidly with very little notice, as well as dealing with um, the general effects of um, crisis intervention, locking down cities, curfews, social distancing, all of those things. And so I thought what we might do is maybe you can just talk to me a little bit about how it uh, the experience has gone um, with the coronavirus for you in Singapore. And then after that, we'll sort of move to a few questions about moving a class to online. Yeah, so thank you for, for giving me the opportunity to share a bit about my experience, um, which in some ways might be relevant uh, to some of the people listening, and in some ways might be totally irrelevant because Singapore is a very different context than the United States um, and most of Europe right now, which um, I imagine many of your listeners are, are from. So Singapore first started to experience this virus right after Chinese New Year um, in in mid to late January. And at that time, um, we're fortunate that we're operating in a very uh, coordinated environment where the Ministry of Education takes a lot of kind of public goods provision approach for the for the local schools. And so we got a lot of notifications and a bit more advanced warning. And that's allowed us to kind of slow our approach. And um, it maybe has not felt quite as urgent every day as it is currently feeling in the U.S. So what we've done here is we've moved our courses over 50 students to an online setting. And then... Uh, where I work at Yale and U.S. College, which is a collaboration between Yale University and the National University of Singapore. Most of our courses are smaller than that. Um, and where we have fewer than 50 students in a course, individual faculty and students have been given some choice as to whether they want to move their courses online or whether they want to continue with face-to-face instruction. So we've had a wide range of teaching styles happening from fully online to fully face-to-face to this kind of hybrid. You have a few students who have maybe gone to their home countries uh, while the rest of us remain here. It's been, it's been interesting um, to be sure. Yeah. And obviously, and um, it's about to be that way for, again, for those of us here in the United States, what classes are you teaching this semester and what have where have you sort of settled on in terms of online or face-to-face for your specific classes and what kind of, um, for your broader colleagues, you know, what have, what have most of them ended up doing? Yeah, I think, um, again, we're very fortunate because Singapore took a, an aggressive 
approach to managing the virus early on and has had the, the resources and the public health system to do a lot more contract tracing, a lot more testing, and so a lot more isolation. Um, and that has in some ways saved us from having to, to all kind of rapidly go online. I'm currently teaching a advanced seminar on conquest and territorial expansion, which is my research area. And um, I've opted to continue teaching mostly face-to-face, -face, but um, many of my students are not from Singapore. Uh, at my college, 50% of our students are from the rest of the world. And so I'm having a computer up with Zoom while also trying to manage a face-to-face -face class. And in the coming weeks, we'll see how the virus develops here and it might go to fully online. What kind of... I guess you could say technological hurdles, whether it's, you know, the actual application itself, Zoom, or, um, but also just the conceptually moving from, from online, you know, from, from a traditional class into a sort of an online right. setting. You mean beyond my just basic technological? Yeah, uh, you know, interacting with students or yeah. trying to, yeah, trying to figure all that out and, and integrate into kind of a daily workflow. I mean, I know one of the challenges that I've had over in the, just this week as we've moved to online is when I start to think about my my sort of daily work day as I think about prepping for class, it's starting to look a lot differently because now I'm, I'm trying to manage um, how to do this on Zoom. I had one training on Zoom and, you know, I got out of that and I was exhausted because I was trying to learn the application while I was trying to do the training. And I was just thinking, you know, my first class you know, normally when I'm in a lecture or, or a seminar, I don't have to worry about the technology. Like I almost never use it in the classroom other than sort of maybe PowerPoint. Uh, most of the time I'm looking at student expressions and I can glance out at the classroom and see, you know, a half a dozen faces at one time. And then I can respond to, you know, the student that grimaces and I can say, oh, hey, you know, Susan or John, like you look like you have a question and I can be much more ad hoc with it. But when doing it on Zoom, you know, I have these, you know, these little square boxes, you know, it's like um, um, Hollywood Squares game from back in the day. And you're just trying to follow all the faces. And it's some of them are choosing to, you know, pipe in verbally. Some of them are trying to use the app and I'm trying to sort of manage all that. For me, just this week was, was pretty challenging. I'm wondering if, if you experienced that, how long was the learning curve for you, you know, or, or maybe even for some of your colleagues, but also your students, I think. Yeah, so I have a couple thoughts on that, both based on my own experience teaching, but also as um, the person who currently directs our Center for Teaching and Learning and trying to pool resources and information for our, my fellow faculty. So I think, you know, what you're talking about gets to two important features. One is adjusting the way we think of teaching time and learning time. And then the second is an issue of role adjustment allowing ourselves to adjust the way we see our role as professor. But before we get to that, as important as it is, I actually think that for me, having a bit of time to absorb all of this over a, a slightly longer period has allowed me to zoom out. And I think one of the most important things to recognize is this is not just an issue of technology. This moment for faculty and for students uh, is sort of, as I'm seeing it or feeling it, a, a three-headed issue. It's about technology, it's about pedagogy, but it's also about trauma. And so what we're now facing is not just the challenge of teaching our courses online, we're also facing the challenge of teaching during a national and a global trauma. 
And so I, for my practice, that kind of gives rise to two big issues or adjustments. One is to adjust the expectations I have of my students and of myself. We are all distracted. Um, we are not reading with the depth and the care that we might previously have been able to brought to the class. And so, for example, I've signaled to my students that I put a lot of emphasis on verbal participation, verbal engagement, and I'm going to ratchet down my expectations around that. Because for me to throw out a question that deeply probes their understanding of the reading when their, their mind is elsewhere, and of course it is, mine is too. So one is to kind of adjust expectations um, about what all of us are, are bringing to the table. And then the second um, sort of framework that, that flows from this idea that we're teaching during trauma is to maintain a sense of connection and community. And what's great about this is that this is good advice for teaching during trauma, but it's also good advice for teaching online. So Rebecca Glazier had a post on Duck of Minerva recently titled, What Matters Most for Online Teaching? Or What Matters Most for Teaching During the Coronavirus? And she emphasized based on her and others' research that this sense of connection with students is really valuable for maintaining student engagement, maintaining student learning. But what's nice is it also helps promote learning during times of trauma. So I really take to heart her advice that even if it means you don't understand the ins and outs of Zoom or Canvas or whatever it is as well, your time is better spent thinking about how to maintain that sense of connection um, and not mastering every bit of the technology that's available to us. We're probably not all going to become super savvy at online teaching in a day or even in a week. So that's a little bit how I've been thinking about those issues. And, and this issue about maintaining connection then gives rise to, I think, the point that you raised, which is our teaching day and our teaching week looks and feels different now. And for the students, now that they're at a greater distance, not just from their professors, but from each other, their experience is really different. So I've been trying to think about this as freeing ourselves to meet the moment. One way we can do that is allow ourselves to pursue asynchronous teaching. So to, if, you know, in my class, um, in the beginning of the semester, the idea was that we would meet Tuesdays and Fridays for 80 minutes each. And I'm letting go of that a bit. We're gonna do more independent research that we bring back to the group. We're gonna try and make sure that the time that we spend together is really feeling like community learning time. But, to, to, to decouple learning from the standard sort of class format of it. Um, and that has been helpful, I think, for some people in, in getting through this, especially if you have students on different time zones, and especially for faculty who have childcare or other kinds of responsibilities now at home and can't show up to class on that same kind of schedule. So freeing yourself up for the asynchronous learning, but while thinking of ways to maintain that connection seems to be a really good approach. So that's one. And then the second thing I'll say is I've found it very freeing to think about adjusting kind of a role adjustment, how I think of myself as a professor. And this could be in two directions. So one, if you think of yourself, if your kind of role as a professor is as an instructor, maybe you want to give yourself the freedom to take on the role more of a facilitator. 
So you're not going to do two 45-minute lectures a week. Uh, one face in a screen talking at students for 45 minutes is, is unlikely to capture their attention, especially when they're distracted by everything that's happening in the world. So maybe you break that up into smaller mini lectures and you pair it with some asynchronous independent research activities. Um, instead of creating online videos of your lectures, something I've been doing is trying to find existing videos. There's so much out there now that we can pull from so that you're not duplicating a necessary effort. I also find that when my students are distracted, sometimes they learn more from a video than they do from reading. So one is to kind of think about, do you want to adjust your role from instructor to facilitator? But on the flip side, if you're like me and you're used to doing very little lecture and mostly having students generate knowledge through conversation, I've had to move from a role of facilitator towards more of a role of instructor. So I've actually had to go the other way because I can't expect my students to generate the depth of understanding and curiosity and critical thinking that I could expect a month ago. They're just not quite as with me in the class because of the distraction, because of the disruption. Also, some of them are still kind of adjusting to the new technological environment. And so I'm finding I'm doing more to kind of bring in content. I'm doing more to, to scaffold for them and taking more of the onus on myself to make sure that the, very, the most essential learning objectives for the course are, are achieved. So I don't know if that sounds helpful, but that's that's been helpful for yeah, me. Yeah, it does. It, it 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 seems to kind of reinforce some strategies that I've put in place um, just this week. You know, so you talked about synchronous learning or asynchronous. I mean, I think most people know what those terms are. I've just learned about them in the last you know week. But you know, there's the synchronous students come online to Zoom or they log into a live webcast. Um, and sit down and watch. And the only sort of real difference from being in a physical classroom is obviously now they can be in their bedroom or, you know, in the library or, you know, at home, you know, in another state or another country. And then asynchronous is like, you know, pre-recorded lectures, a lot, you know, a lot of sort of virtual time and allows people to sort of do the material or do the workload um, without having to be sort of synced up, as it were, with the instructor. And when I was thinking about those differences, you know, the um, a lot of the faculty in my department, you know, teach, you know, more sort of liberal arts side, humanity side of political science, a lot of core text, American political thought, political history, and uh, intellectual history. And so, you know, they're, they're sort of really concerned about how to recreate um, the real time discussion that you normally get in a small seminar classroom. And I just sort of realized that that just wasn't going to work. I mean, to expect my students to be fully engaged on a Zoom meeting for 75 minutes twice a week, is it's not gonna come anywhere close to the same phenomenon that would happen if we were physically in the classroom. And so what I've done is I sort of effectively sort of thought about it and I said, well, what if I took 30 to 45 minutes out of that 75 minute block and made it asynchronous? So I'm requiring them to post questions from the readings, the upcoming readings onto the Slack account that the university has. So I have a, a workspace now, which just got up over the weekend. And now they can sort of post links on there or post content about the reading through the week and hopefully drive most of the discussion about the text and its relationship and to sort of all the sort of themes I want them to learn about. And then I'm going to kind of use the, the time on Zoom to really just kind of 
give everybody a chance to check in, see each other's faces digitally, ask any loose end questions that might be sort of lingering from from the Slack conversations. Um, and then obviously any housekeeping things. I mean, we don't really yet know how many other types of disruptions we're going to have. We never, you know, we don't know what's going to, I'm in Arizona, obviously, but other faculty might be in other states where they're moving to even more drastic and you know, forms of, of intervention for the crisis. And so that's kind of how I, I envisioned it, a kind of hybrid between the synchronous and asynchronous. I wasn't thinking about it in terms of community, but I think the the effect, I hope, is is similar to kind of what you're describing. It, it sounds like it would be. And, you know, again, there, there are certainly people out there who, who bring a lot more, many more years of experience to this than I do. But from, from my own experience so far and for what I've been sort of reading and trying to immerse myself in the literature quite quickly, the, the asynchronous mode might actually be a better way to get, uh, help your students learn the most essential things that you still want them to, to get out of this semester. But then having those moments, the, the synchronous moments is one way where the whole class is together at once. Depending on your class size, another way to go about it might be to think about having kind of check-in moments with a couple different groups, perhaps organized by time zone. So depending on how global your student body is, if you have, you know, a bunch that are, you know, on a very different time zone than you are, in addition to the distraction and the trauma, having them try to come online in the middle of the night is probably not going to be much to their benefit. And it's not going to feel like you're helping them learn. It's, it's going to feel like you're just punishing them for for being from another country. So thinking about ways in which you can maybe pick one or two days a week where you have check-ins with smaller groups might be a way to maintain a connection with their students, have them build a sense of connection with a smaller group within within their class and answer questions and kind of, yeah, have that, have that check-in. Because we shouldn't spend, I've been sort of talking to my students about this and we've, we've agreed as a group we're going we're gonna to pare down what we try to achieve this semester. We might not cover as much. In fact, we certainly won't. One of the key goals I had for my students this semester was to grow more confident in using their voice and in, in disagreeing with each other. That's one of my major pedagogical aims is to get them arguing. That's probably not going to happen because arguing online, uh, as we've seen, looks very different and is often not as productive as arguing face-to-face. So I'm just going to have to let some things go, and they are too. But having those moments of check-in can mean that whatever you decide is most essential, that you're not prepared to let go, you can make sure they're actually doing that work. The, the check-ins will, will, especially paired with some concrete deliverables, you know, everyone needs to have a causal diagram that they can show up on the screen. Everyone needs to have one question. Everyone needs to identify one passage that really resonated with them. Whatever it is where they feel some sense of deliverable is also not, you know, we, we don't want to be too taxing on mental health, but if we spend all of our time checking Facebook for Corona updates, that's not good. And if we spend all of our time trying to stuff our brain with, you know, terrible early 90s rom-coms so that we don't have to think about how scary the world is right now. That's also not good. So I've been sort of framing it to my students as we want to protect our mental health. We want to keep learning, but learning is also a way to keep ourselves kind of mentally healthy during a difficult time. Yeah. Yeah. A couple more questions and then we'll, we'll sort of wrap this up. But one, one thing you sort of mentioned on, which will segue for me to the, my next question is sort of the, 
how we think about these assignments. Like, so one of the things that I've done is I usually start my, my semester or my class on the whiteboard and I take, you know, student questions about the text. So I say, okay, we, you know, we assigned, you know, chapter one of George Kennan's, you know, American diplomacy. And we're, you know, we try to get, you know, three to five questions on the board from the students, force them to sort of write something down. I've never sort of required them to do that for points. I now have done that. What I've done is in Canvas, the reading assignment, it's basically like one point. You know, I just want them to submit it an hour before class so that I can read everybody's responses and maybe think about where I might want to start the online synchronous part of the conversation with like, oh, Catherine, you had a really good question. It said this. Can you tell me what you were thinking? And then hopefully, you know, get off to the races much, much faster. But that got me thinking in relation to what you were saying is in terms of like assessment and evaluation, I didn't design any of my assignments or my evaluation for online. I'm now thinking about how to do that. You know, one thing I've done is um, I have these short writing assignments that are due every week, one page. That was kind of the low stakes. I just want to see that they're actually recording the text. I've effectively split that in half from, you know, the first half of the semester before we went to spring break and they were turning them in, you know, the day before class and, you know, super polished. And I would give them back in class with comments. And now I've basically moved that inside of Canvas. It's a whole separate group. And now all of the ones they'll do online are a whole separate because it's not even the same conditions as you were explaining. Like they're thinking about coronavirus. They're wondering about their grandma or their uncle who's in a, you know, who lives in Seattle and they're worried. It. And so I, I can't really expect the same kind of level of performance from them, but I also can't expect the the assignment to have the same kind of uh, stimulus for them in, in terms of thinking. And so how have you had to adapt your evaluations and assessments? What else have you heard from some of your other colleagues? And, you know, just sort of maybe speak about that for a little bit. Yeah. So um, I think, you know, we were introduced because I, I wrote something for Times Higher Ed on this topic when Corona, uh, COVID-19 first hit Singapore, and we were anticipating this move to online courses, one of the things that really struck me and that I wrote about in that article is that the issue of assessment seemed to be the number one concern that most people were grappling with. How, and, and in particular, the issue of academic integrity. How can we prevent students from cheating when they're taking all of their exams long distance, they're going to be texting each other the answers. And, and that struck me as an understandable, but somewhat unfortunate focus of energy with everything that's going on to focus so much on preventing cheating and, and, and comparatively less to how do we promote learning for our students seemed like a bit of a misstep. So in the article, I have some some ideas about how faculty can engage in online assessment. And yes, there are some ways that you can design online assessments that reduce the risk of cheating. So, you know, some of these systems, there can even be a camera that's, there's technologies that allow you to have a camera recording what the student is doing. Of course, then someone says, ah, but they could have a, you know, a phone that they are holding behind the camera. Yes, a very enterprising student that really wants to cheat is going to find a way to cheat. You can ask questions that don't just result in right or wrong answers. So in the article, I give the example of instead of having a question that says, um, define the collective action problem, which yes, you could easily Wikipedia, ask it as a question, something like define the collective action problem and give an illustration with reference to our specific university context. 
or give an illustration with reference to your family dynamics. You can't find that on Wikipedia, right? Um, so tweaking questions slightly, um, and frankly, that makes for a better question anyway, because they're actually having to think, do they really understand how this concept works in day-to-day -day life, not just to give you the, the definition from the textbook. So there's some things that you can do to kind of design online assessments that make them less vulnerable to cheating and, and make them more meaningful. But I think, as I say in the article, I've been sort of promoting a, a lean-in approach and a let-it-go approach. So the lean-in approach would be to say, we're now doing these assessments online. Let's actually design them for online. Instead of having exams that are designed to be taken in a classroom with a proctor and a monitor, design open book exams. Ask fewer questions, but make them more engaging, more creative, require critical thinking. Let's just recognize where we're at and, and seize the moment and lean into it and design take home open book exams. That might be one, one way to think about this. Another would be to use online forums and venues. Uh, so you could do oral exams, which used to be quite common and has sort of become passe. Let's bring back the oral exam if we need to. If we want to get that kind of summative assessment, have a conversation. That doesn't work if you have a huge class, but if you have a smaller class, that might be an option. Have students do like a Prezi presentation, create a video, something of that nature. So there's all sorts of ways that we can broaden our notions of assessment to, to kind of lean into the fact that we're doing it online. The other option uh, that I talk about in the article is if you can't design the cheat proof perfect online assessment, let it go. I mean, of all the things to be worrying about, I, I always say to my students, I'm going to assume that you're going to act with integrity and honor until I'm proven elsewise. And I try to empower them not to lean on other resources. I try to empower them to use their own voice. I try to point out, shoot them an email, hey, the thing you said in class was really helpful or the question you asked, little things we can do to empower them to use their own voice will make them less prone to panic and less prone to cheating. So even if it means having them sort of sign some sort of honor statement or have a series of quick video chats with them about this issue where face-to-face -face they say to you, I hear you, I will act with integrity. And you can say to them face-to-face, -face, I'm putting trust in you to act with integrity. That can also connect to this issue of using this moment to build community, create a sense of tether between the student and the professor in a time of difficulty. So those have been some of the ways I've, I've been thinking about that particular issue. Yeah, no, that sounds actually really great. I, years ago, I think when I was a TA or graduate TA at University of Texas, where I did my, my PhD, I, or I was teaching my own class and I was thinking about these things. And I ended up for a couple of my class assignments doing an online quiz and at the, from the advice of, a, of one of the faculty who does a massive thousand student online course it was like just tinker with like the timing you know you give a five question quiz on the readings really easy answers that if they've read it they would know but instead of giving them five minutes to do it give them three give them two minutes to to do five questions i mean that's it seems really fast if the questions are hard it's kind of unfair but if you if you tinker with that in such a way 
you know, the students who've done the readings and are prepared are going to do fine. And the students who are trying to cheat are going to realize, you know, they just spent 45 seconds looking up one answer on Wikipedia. You know, they now only have, you know, 90 seconds left to get the other ones in. Like there are, there are ways you can do it. And then beyond that, you don't worry about it because if they want, if they figure out a way to cheat hundred percent, you know, on that fine, you know, all the more power to them. What I realized then is my, each week, my, my curve distribution was pretty much right where you'd want it to be. I mean, so even if somebody was cheating, you know, in a course of a, of a hundred students, I never saw sort of anything that looked out of the ordinary or, or spurious that would lead me to think that there was any kind of cheating going on. And it was just some, something like what you, you described with this lean in and let go, figure out how to do it well, and then don't worry about it and realize that they're going to have these, these open-ended, um, open source examples. Last year I did a, I did an oral exam. I had a small class and a a senior faculty mentor of mine who teaches at a different university requires his students to do an oral exam as well still for the same reasons of like, you really get to know how deep they go because you can probe them and you can see them sort of Mm -hmm. grimace inside of your office as you're poking and you're able to go three or four levels deep and you'll, you basically, he exams them until he hits the point at which he realizes they haven't thought about it. But again, the students who were, were, were sort of just phoning it in, you know, by the time that you get to the second level of sort of questions that you can tell they, they really haven't done the work or, but kids who can, can kind of hang and, and have thought about it and are, are doing the work, you ask them a really deep question, it's not going to knock it out of the park, but they're going to have something in their mind that they can answer with relatively quickly. So yeah, maybe for small classes that, you know, some, some version of that could be, could be really good. Um, yeah, I think you need to you need to obviously adjust this to your to your situation. If you're teaching, you know, a hundred students and you don't have any graders or or help with your grading, I think you know the idea of constraining time and and making making questions hard you know hard enough but not too hard uh, is, is a is a is a good way to go. I think if you have the luxury of being able to look over the materials yourself and ask somewhat more complex questions. What I always come back to is, you know, in life, students are not going to be asked to do things that, that mirror the kinds of exams that we give them in college. They're not asked to work alone. They're asked to work in teams. They're not asked to work in total information isolation. They're asked to go out and figure out how to find the best information to answer their boss's question or write the memo or whatever it is, right? Think about what we're all doing right now. We are crowdsourcing. We are asking each other. We're collaborating. And why are we doing that? Because we think we'll do a better job by our students if we're in it together than if we're in it siloed and alone. So if we can mirror some of that for our students in our assignments, assignments should also ideally be not just an assessment of learning, but contribute to learning. They're a moment for learning. And so I, I feel like we rob students of an exciting learning opportunity when we, when we make exams, um, you know, such a, such a poor, poor proxy for the kinds of intellectual endeavors they'll do once they graduate. I recognize that, that not everyone can act on that impulse in the same way that I, that I can right now having 15 students. But the other thing I just would throw out there is that I would really encourage people to think about what they are really trying to measure and what they are really trying to get out of these assignments and think about paring it down. So right now I'm teaching an advanced course. I had hoped to do a research uh, paper. 
that has now been turned into an annotated bibliography with a short summary. I just don't, I don't see the value for my class. That might not be for other people's situation, but in my class, it doesn't, it's not the prereq for anything else. It's a, it's a course in and of itself. There's no knowledge they absolutely have to master before they can move on to another subject. And so given everything that's going on, I think that I will have given them what I hoped to impart by having them do an annotated bibliography. I don't really need them to write a full-on research essay right now. They've got enough on their plate. So if we can think about ways that we can really target what we want our students to be learning, what we really need to be assessing in terms of their learning, and then maybe ratchet everything down a little bit, I think we'll do them, we'll do them the great favor of freeing them up to learn the most important things and not be overwhelmed with all of these deadlines and assignments at a time when they're already overwhelmed with the state of the world and the job market that they're entering into and their grandmother in a nursing home in Seattle and so on and so forth. Yeah, I think that's a, a really great place to sort of stop and, you know, just thank you for your time to sort of sketch out for, for those of us who were just entering the fray, what it's, what it's looked like for somebody who's sort of been in the trenches now for several more weeks uh, in terms of time. And I know that many other faculty are, again, this is going to be a great help for them. For those of you who are hopefully listening to this on the Duck of Minerva, if you have any ideas, obviously post it to, to the Duck on the, the post where this link uh, shows up, or you can email me at lukemperez at asu.edu. Catherine, can we give them your email if they, or do you, are you sort of overloaded? Yes, I am, I am on the hunt for all the good ideas. Um, and if I said anything that isn't a good idea, I would love to know that it's a bad idea so that I can stop saying it. So I'm Catherine Sanger at Yale NUS College in Singapore. And I direct the Center for Teaching and Learning there, which is teaching.yale-nus.edu.sg. And my email is katherine.sanger at yale-nus.edu.sg. All right. Thank you so much. (laughs) Thank you. This has been Luke Perez and Catherine Sanger for the Duck of Minerva. If you have any feedback on this, you can reach either of us by email or you can comment in the post that will be up on the Duck's blog for this episode. The music for today is Cesar Cui's opera, A Feast in the Time of Plague. <laughs>